Thanks for joining us for another God-inspired message from C3 Church Monash. Connect with us online at c3monash.org.au and we hope you enjoy today's message. Amen. Wow. What a start. What a night. Whew. You may be seated. Thanks, worship team. Well, I hope everybody is well and glad to be here. Turn to the person next to you and ask them if they're glad to be here. If they say yes, give them a high five. If they say no, punch them in the arm. My name is Ben, and I have the privilege of sharing with you tonight. But I have the burden of preaching after Pastor Steve. How good was the message this morning? I'm sitting in the, out there with everybody else, sort of going, Steve, don't do that. It's not good. It is good, but it's not good. I don't want to preach after that, Nuttles. We are a very blessed church to have a pastor who preaches the word, and we're blessed to have a team of people who are happy to get up and preach the word. It's very, very good, but tonight you're stuck with me. So, as you would have seen this morning, and as you can see there, we are preaching into Enlighten for the month of March, based around the passage of Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, I am fortunate enough to be preaching twice in March. Whether that considers you as fortunate or not, that's up to you to decide, but I get to preach twice. Both of them are at PM services. So I'm actually really looking forward to being able to press into this passage in Ephesians uh, to kind of dig into it a little bit, maybe try and get below the surface and spread it across the two messages. So if maybe you like what you hear tonight, you better come back later. If not, you'll know not to. So, but I'm sure you all will, won't you? So... We're going to try and connect the two messages. And one of the things for me that has been an ongoing revelation and really changed the way I probably approach my reading of the Bible is the idea that I think we need to be little or have a little more concerted effort to know the author, to know the audience, to know the context that it was written in and the context that it was received in if we want to try and find out what God has for us. And so with this in mind... We're going to dig tonight. Now, this may or may not be a newsflash to you, but the book of Ephesians was not written to you or me. Recently, I heard a theologian by the name of Bob Gorlick say it this way, do you realize that when you read the New Testament writings, a significant portion of them at least anyway, you are reading somebody else's mail? You see, the book of Ephesians rolls off our tongue without a whole lot of thought, but it's not a book. It is, in fact, a letter written by a particular someone to a particular group of someones at a particular point in time. And I'll try not to say particular again tonight. But for just a few moments, I want you to embrace your powers of imagination with me. We are going to imagine that Pastor Phil Pringle, everybody knows who Pastor Phil is? Yes? No? He's the leader and the founder or the current leader still of the C3 movement of which our church is a part of. And one day, Pastor Phil sits down in his office to write us here at C3 Monash a letter. Now, Pastor Phil knows us a little bit, he's visited a few times, and he wants to just put some thoughts into a letter for us. In this letter, there may be some encouragement, some exhortation, teaching and instruction. There may be a little chastisement, and perhaps even a prophetic word or two, but it's all tied up in this letter that is addressed to us. Now, we receive the letter, and we're encouraged by it, we're probably a little challenged by it too, and we're going to hang on to it. We're going to keep it because we know that over time, we're probably going to return back to it because we'll continue to get value out of it. But we're now going to jump forward a couple of hundred years, give or take, 
What's that make it? 2220-odd, 2219. And we're not going to speculate on exactly where we think Cetri Monash might actually be at that point. But let's just say that in the year 2220, someone happens to come across our 200-year-old letter. Maybe they find it in a filing cabinet in a storage shed somewhere. Maybe it's tucked into a dusty old Bible or something like that. But they come across this letter and they read our mail. Wouldn't it be fascinating to do that? Those that read the letter in the year 2220 would no doubt find a lot of value in what they read. Much of what is in the letter would still likely have application for their day and age. But there will be nuances. There will be things in the letter that might not quite make sense or be so easy to recognise or understand. Culture will have changed in the 200 years between now and then. And who knows that there's culture within culture. Canberra has its own culture within Australia. Melbourne has its own culture. Sydney has its own culture. Language will have evolved. I'm not sure we've yet found a letter or a telegram from the 1700s that was signed off YOLO, you only live once, or LOL, laugh out loud. Things change. And so to get at the gold and to avoid misunderstandings and to find answers to some of the questions that they may have, like, why did he say that to them? What the heck was that church doing? Or, was he joking when he said that? Or is that serious? The people that found our letter would have to do some investigation. And the point is, is that if we approach the letter to the Ephesians, even subconsciously, from our perspective as postmodern 21st century Westerners, perhaps even, and again subconsciously, as though it was written from that perspective, then we are going to miss some things. Not everything. So much of it does transfer through as wisdom and principle which we can apply today. But there will be bits and pieces in the scripture. There will be nuances and meat that we just don't get to. So, a little bit of context. Ephesus was an important port city on the west coast of Asia. Some say with a population of possibly up to 170,000. There was a lot of wealth, and it was counted as a religious metropolis. It was home to the Temple of Artemis, which is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And if we read quickly from Acts 19, 27 through 34, we get a good picture of the importance to the city of both wealth and their goddess. So if we can bring that passage from Acts up, that'd be great. And so this is some Ephesians talking to each other. Obviously what's happened here is Paul and his boys have gone in and caused a bit of trouble. They're stirring up some things. And so this is a conversation and a situation that occurred in the city of Ephesus. Uh, verse 27, And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, so they were making money off the temple of Artemis, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre. So they had a theatre, almost like a sports stadium, that at the time of Paul held more than 20,000 people, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, Paul was looking for a fight, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now someone cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them didn't know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defence to the crowd. But when they recognised that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Ephesus was also home to a number of other temples. There was one for the goddess Roma, another for a divine Julius Caesar, and plenty more. So these are a generally fairly wealthy people. 
in a busy, Greek-influenced and speaking Roman metropolis that is a spiritually charged and saturated environment. And they are being written to by a thoroughly Hebrew individual who happens to be a scholar of the biblical text, the Old Testament, and who at the time of writing was being held against his will in Rome. So, let's open their mail and let's see what the Apostle Paul was writing about to the believers in Ephesus. We're going to read chapter 1 from 15 through verse 21. So we get a bit of context around verse 18 where Paul speaks of having the eyes of our heart enlightened. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. It's a lot of words, isn't it? And there is always so much to take in and try and digest when Paul is writing But today we're just going to focus in on the first couple of key points from that passage. As Paul often does, he uses some very strong language. In verse 16 he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And why? Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. So Paul is expressing a significant thanks, an unceasing thanks, and primarily because of their faith. The word that Paul uses here for faith is the Greek word pistis. And it's his choice as the word in Greek that will best convey the meaning of the Hebrew word for faith, which is immuna. Now, this word immuna comes from a root word, aman, and it's also where we get our word amen from. But it speaks to trust, trustworthiness, reliability. And it also speaks strongly of the idea of firm action. Now, interestingly, the Jewish New Testament translation actually uses the word trust in place of faith. For this reason, because I have heard of your trust in the Lord Jesus. Now, we do have a little bit of a practical thing to do here. Pastor Steve, I did warn you. Can I please borrow you? Mr. Andrew, can I borrow you too for one moment? Now, Pastor Steve is a trustworthy guy. Would you say so? I'd be careful what you say. Actually, I should warn you. Yes, he is very trustworthy. Thanks, Andrew. Come bring it on over. Pastor Steve is a very trustworthy guy. Who would say that they can have faith in Pastor Steve? Anybody? Oh, I see a hand there. I see a hand there. Deb, I see a hand. I like. Good. All right, so who are we going to pull up, Pastor Steve? Let's, Crofty, you put your hand up. Let's go. No, we'll do it down here. Now, one of my responsibilities at church is to kind of manage work health and safety. I've done the risk assessment on this. It may end badly, but we're going to do it anyway. No, 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 no. I need you down here. I need you down here. Sarah, you trust Steve, right? Awesome. I'd love you to climb. Probably at least the third or fourth step up. Keep going. Pastor Steve, come on down. Yep, keep going. Beautiful. You all right? Now... You're going to close your eyes and fall back. Steve's going to catch you. All right? I'm going to count. No, 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 no. We're serious here. Do you trust him? Like you just told me that you trusted him. No, 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 no. You just told me that you trusted him. Do you trust him or not? Ah, careful. Do you trust him or not? No, I don't need a qualification from you. I just... Steve is going to catch you. We're ready, team? On three. One. No, I'm kidding. You can hop down. Hop down. You all right? All right. Andrew, I might let you to come and grab that if you can. Thank you, sir. So, sometimes the word 
And this has to do with the Greek orientation and way of thinking, which is the background for the Ephesians. But outward faith, and Pastor Steve actually touched on this this morning, so it's always good to see how God works, but is perceived as a matter of assent to the truth of a claim or an intellectual agreement with or belief in something. And sometimes it also means to act in support of that claim. I can believe in something, I can accept it, I can acknowledge it, have faith in it, and not do a whole lot more with it, but still call it faith. The Hebrew word immuna, the word for faith, doesn't allow that. It is a firm action word built on the visibility of trust. In the mind and in the writing of Paul, to have faith in God is never simply a matter of knowing and acknowledging God or Jesus. Rather, in the mind of Paul, faith is those who know and acknowledge God or Jesus acting with firmness and with trust towards God's will for them. It has far less to do with what we believe than with what we do. Author and scholar Arthur Moen goes so far as to say, we might even suggest that biblical faith is most effective when I'm intellectually convinced that what I'm about to do is impossible. At the edge of the Red Sea, faith is lifting up my hands. At Jericho, it is walking in silence. In front of Nebuchadnezzar's oven, it's declaring my resolve. In a Jewish village, it is willingly bearing the shame of pregnancy. This is impossible. That's why I do it. You see, much like Sarah can say that she trusted Pastor Steve, and I have faith in you, it has little substance until that trust is required in a very real sense to be activated. I didn't give you any chance to answer then, Sarah. We're just pushing on. So. <laughs> Brennan Manning says in his book, Ruthless Trust, if we could free ourselves from the temptation to make faith a mindless ascent to a dusty pawn shop of doctrinal beliefs, we would discover with alarm that the essence of biblical faith lies in trusting God. And as Marcus Borg has noted, the first is a matter of the head, the second a matter of the heart. The first can leave us unchanged, the second intrinsically brings change. He goes on to say, the faith that animates the Christian community is less a matter of believing in the existence of God than a practical trust in his love and uh, loving care under whatever pressure. The stakes here are enormous, for I have not said in my heart, God exists until I have said, I trust you. The first assertion is rational, abstract, a matter of natural theology, the mind laboring at its logic. The second is communion, bread on the tongue from an unseen hand. Against insurmountable obstacles and without a clue as to the outcome, the trusting heart says, Abba, I surrender my will and my life to you without any reservation and with boundless confidence for you and my loving Father. This is the faith, the trust that the Ephesians were actively displaying such that Paul was able to say, because I have heard of your faith. And again, remember the context. A wealthy and important city, saturated in spirituality and pagan idol worship. But Paul hears of their visibly active faith, their immuna in Jesus. And if we turn quickly to Revelation 2.2, just the first portion, we're going to see Jesus instructing the Apostle John as part of his revelation to him to write to the church in Ephesus. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Paul wasn't the only person to have heard about the firm action of the Ephesians' faith. But notice that even Jesus doesn't say to them, I know your belief in me. I know your intellectual agreement with or assent to my position as Lord and Saviour. What stood out for Jesus, enough that it would be included in the revelation to John, 
was the action associated with the Ephesians' faith. So the relevance of this to us is quite simple. If someone was to speak of us, to view our lives closely and to report back on to someone else, would there be more evidence for us as people of faith of our visible trust in Jesus or will there be more action, more evidence in our lives that demonstrate perhaps we don't quite trust him? At least not ruthlessly. Would Pastor Phil's letter to us, the one that people are reading in 2220, is he going to say that because of our immuna, because of the firm action of our faith, that he just can't stop giving thanks? And then the question actually is, as a church community, what do we want that letter to say? That we were known for believing well? Or that we were known for acting firmly on our belief? It makes you think a little bit. In the original Greek, verses 15 through to 23 of Ephesians 1 is actually one long sentence. It's this continuous stream of thoughts that are all connected, weaved together and leading into and out of one another. And interestingly, straight after Paul says that he doesn't cease giving thanks for their faith, he says, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So he just gets finished saying how thankful he is because of their strong action-based faith, which to me suggests that they were probably doing fairly well, particularly given the context they're in. I think they're doing okay. But then the next thing he says is, the request that is at the top of his prayer list for them is that they would know God better. Paul is praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. And no matter where we are in our faith journey, we can always know God a little better, right? But what Paul tells the Ephesians, and then by extension us, is that a greater knowledge of God leads to the eyes of our heart being enlightened, which occurs for the purpose of us being able to see the hope that he has called us to. Does anybody else read that and just think, what? Or is it just me? I just go, what does that mean? What is he actually trying to say here? So I think the first thing is, is that the spirit of wisdom and revelation required to know God better has to be given to us by God. It is a gift that we need to ask for. And here Paul is asking for it on behalf of the Ephesians. But this wisdom does not come or is not found by reading more books or listening to more podcasts. It's not found in more training and education. The wisdom to know God more is a gift by revelation of the Spirit. Now this very much aligns with what we hear about wisdom elsewhere in Scripture. Solomon speaks of wisdom, its value and where it comes from in Proverbs 2 verses 1 through to 11. We can bring that one up. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, he is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Paul understood that wisdom and revelation is required to know God more. 
but he also recognizes that the more we know God, the more we will understand and practice, as Solomon says, righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. In essence, the more wisdom we will gain from what God has stored up. What is it to know righteousness, justice, equity, and every good path? What is it to have a decision in front of you, to have a fork in the road, to have a challenge, and to know the good path? It is to know and act from the perspective of God. That's wisdom. And it's this wisdom, this seeing and acting from God's perspective, which is the enlightening to the eyes of our heart. It wakes up the sight of our inner man so that we can see as he sees. It's not possible to see as God sees. It's not possible to look upon the issues that we have in our lives, the challenges in front of us, and the different paths we have to choose from. In God's perspective, if we're using our human eyes. And as Paul said to the Ephesians, the enlightening of our heart's eyes, the waking up of in the inner man's sight is required if we are to know the hope to which he has called us to. Hope has to do with the future, but the future is unknown. And so real hope is founded on the belief that there is one who does know the future and who is fully capable of impacting its outcome. The hope that only our inner man can see is the absolute and utter reliability of God based on the already completed work of Jesus and his resurrection. That's our evidence. That's the hope. It is the guarantee of God's promises and purposes coming to pass irrespective of what our world looks like to our human eyes. Perhaps this is why it's the first thing on Paul's prayer list to the Ephesian believers. He wanted them to see the hope that God had called them to. He wanted them to see the guaranteed reliability of his promises and his purposes because their world, much like ours, was filled with idol worship, distractions, false promise, distortions of truth. And they just needed, as we do now, to be anchored in that which is reliable, trustworthy and true. But we can't see that unless the eyes of our heart are enlightened. If we turn again to Revelation 2.2, we have Jesus' words uh, again to the church in Ephesus through John. We know from earlier that it reads, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. But it then continues on and says, uh, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So the Ephesian believers received the gift of wisdom and revelation that Paul had been praying for them. They determined the good path and they were able to discern in the midst of their very challenging environment what was the right way to go. Who do we listen to? What's the right path? Will the same be said of us here at C3 Monash? Will we be a people like those in Ephesus who through wisdom and revelation know God more and more, having the eyes of our hearts opened, to see and know for sure the hope we have in the total reliability, the certainty of God's promises and purposes. In this day and age where there is so much uncertainty, so much toing and froing of thought, and a seemingly always evolving sense of personal truth, are we going to be a community of people who stand on the truth? The truth of the one and only God and his son, Jesus. Will we, will we be known for our faith of firm action around our belief 
in God and his son? Will people look to us and know there's no confusion? Will they look to us and know that the truth we have is the truth? There's so much more in this passage. And again, as I said, I get a second crack at it later in the month. So I'm looking forward to just continuing to pull out the context of this passage and the enlightening around our heart. And it goes on to talk so much about the immeasurable. Again, Paul just uses all these big words and strong words about the immeasurable power that is available to us. But tonight what we'll do is if we can just get the band back up or the the worship team back up, we're going to let them finish with a song and it'd be great for people to take a moment just to pray as the team worships and actually seek out that spirit of wisdom and revelation. It does not come unless we seek it out. But we know that in James, God says those who lack wisdom should ask and he will give generously to all without finding fault. He wants to give it. We just need to ask for it. Have the eyes of our heart enlightened. So please, let's take the moment as the team worship, pray and seek out that wisdom, that revelation. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you have any prayer needs, email prayer at c3monash.org.au or connect with us online.